0: You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we welcome Felix Allen. Felix is a lead organizer for the Lowe's Workers United, an independent, unaffiliated trade union recently organized at the Lowe's Home Improvement Store in New Orleans. We also welcome back to the podcast Gabriel Donnelly, who has been covering the independent trade union movement in with Sober Senses. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. So in just a moment, we'll be discussing independent trade unions with Felix Allen and Gabriel Donnelly. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I are going to take a few moments to discuss some current events. We're recording this current event segment on the 14th of uh, February. There's all sorts of things in the news. But one thing that hasn't got a lot of attention that we thought should get more attention is the fascinating case of Charles McGonigal, the former FBI agent, who has now been indicted by the FBI and charged with several crimes involving both basically being bribed by Albanian politicians to be a fixer for an Albanian politician, and even more strikingly for working for Oleg Deripaska, the Russian oligarch and close friend of Vladimir Putin. Uh, McGonagall was the head agent in charge of the New York counterintelligence field office uh, for the FBI and from 2016 to 2018. And he's worked for the FBI for decades in, in counterintelligence, uh, cyber security, things like that. The story is not just fascinating and the stuff of James Bond novels, just because it involves a high level FBI agent being accused of corruption and peddling influence for foreign powers. But because this particular placement of McGonagall in the New York field office and his his now apparent ties to Russian oligarchs and indirect ties to Putin means that he was right at the nexus of what the, the FBI and their involvement with, or lack of involvement with investigating Russian influence on the 2016 election that brought Trump to power The New York field office of the FBI was responsible, many suspect, of forcing James Comey to leak that he was reopening the investigation to Hillary Clinton just days before the election took place. They were also the ones who were in charge of investigating a russian influence on donald trump after the election and they were the ones who were supposed to be watching out for russian interference R- russian active measures against uh, us elections so the fact that the man in charge of all these things now uh, appears to be on the take from russian oligarchs is really alarming and some people not a lot of people in the mainstream press but some people are Pointing out that this casts a whole new light on many aspects of the RussiaGate issue. The the piece that I found that is probably the most uh, informative about this is a piece written by Timothy Snyder on January 26th of this year. It's called The Spectre of 2016. Timothy Snyder, of course, is a professor at Yale and a celebrated historian uh, focusing on Russia. And he has written a lot of books on Russia and even wrote a book recently about Russian influence on the U.S. And he's been following some of these issues for a long time and wrote a great piece on his own substack that we'll link to. looking at Point by point, all the ways in which the McGonagall case.
1: It's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it's
0: the tip of the iceberg. The Russian influence campaign on American politics, their attempt to get Trump elected, seems to have gone all. possibly went all the way to high-level FBI agents being involved with uh, the conspiracy.
1: Right. The only thing I'd add in terms of just the recitation of facts is who Deripaska is, was, apart from just being a highly placed Russian oligarch. He employed Paul Manafort, who became Trump's campaign manager in 2016, and Manafort owed Deripaska a lot of money. And to become whole, Manafort shoveled information to the Russians, campaign information, including – here's what Snyder describes it – including campaign polling data about Americans that would be useful for influence operations. And he was asked to communicate a Russian plan for the partition of Ukraine to Trump. And this was payback for the debt that he owed to to Deripaska. So there's a very, very tight connection via Manafort and and Deripaska linking uh, Putin to Trump and Trump to to Putin. And the fact that McGonagall, uh, one of the charges is that he was taking money from Deripaska uh, after McGonagall retired in 2018. We don't know what happened before 2018, but that clearly shows something really bad's going on here.
0: Yeah. And Snyder points out that apparently it was common knowledge that agents in the New York field office were out to get Hillary Clinton. They hated her. And this was like common knowledge in the bureau.
1: It was common knowledge to me in in 2016. I mean, you know, everybody knew it. Everybody knew that this is why uh, Comey released the news totally contrary to to protocol, released the news that the uh, Hillary Clinton email investigation was being reopened. It's like, why was this being done? Oh, well, you know, he was worried about the uh, field office in New York.
0: And these are the people that were supposed to be watching out for foreign influence on elections and cybersecurity and stuff. And instead of investigating that at all in 2016 and the run to the election, they were busy attempting to undermine Hillary Clinton's campaign with a bunch of stuff that turned out to be nothing burgers, just empty, nothing stories about emails.
1: Yeah, and I think Snyder makes a really important point. You know, he's a student of active measures campaigns. He's a specialist in Ukraine, so he he sees how the Putin regime has operated vis-a-vis Ukraine for a very long time. The point that he makes is among the many points here that I think are very interesting. It doesn't have to be that everybody in the FBI field office in New York was consciously part of a conspiracy, McGonagall looks like he was, but could be that other people were just being played. And that's how active measures campaigns operate. And that's the point he makes. What the Russian agents were able to do was to play on their sympathies, their hostility to Hillary Clinton, their pro-Trump inclinations, and get them to do stuff that they might have thought that they were doing it of their own accord rather than under the Russian influence. OK, but that's people who know how to influence make you think that you're doing it voluntarily. So he says, look, it could be some combination of a lot of elements, ideology, money, and just the exploitation of sympathies. And the the basic problem is what what businesses do FBI agents have communicating their hostility to Hillary Clinton and their pro-Trump leanings in the first place that just sets them up to be used in an active measures campaign?
0: He also makes a really good point that I hadn't heard made quite this way before, which was after Trump gets elected and the FBI is supposed to be investigating the Trump-Putin connection, you know, the FBI under McGonigal was responsible for framing this in a very narrow way that made it very difficult to actually prove collusion. Rather than being like a, a wide focus that's trying to look at all the ways that Russian active measures were able to influence politics, they defined the entire thing very narrowly as a question of basically like did Trump and Putin personally conspire together to do to you know to get Trump elected or to hack Clinton's emails or whatever we've had this problem in general with people who have poo-pooed the Russiagate scandal and and called it a big bunch of uh, hot air or a distraction from the real reasons Hillary lost, like we hear from people on the left. This very high, almost impossible standard of proof, some people think we're we're supposed to abide by, you know, from my perspective, a lot of people's perspective that it seems very obvious that there was such a big influence operation going on. And it was working with the Trump organization at so many different levels from people like Pant Miller. Manafort, who were directly working with uh, the Russians, to you know people like Roger Stone, who were leaking things, to working with the Russians, to Trump's changing the party platform in 2016 to softer on Russia for various things. Like there, there were like so many ways in which the influence campaign had a lot more to it than just can be explained if all your focus is on like trying to find a smoking gun where you know Trump shook hands with a Kremlin agent or something.
1: Right. It's it's not how things work. And if you really care about, first of all, investigating and getting at what's really going on, you don't limit your search for information to potentially provable crimes. But second of all, I mean, this just shows that there's something really wrong with just the, the, the whole way in which this is being combated, because it's always being combated in terms of, is there a provable crime here? And some things that these people do are not provably crimes. I mean, it's not a crime for one campaign to communicate with, with Russians, blah, 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 blah. The problem is... This is part of a Russian Act Measures campaign of a Putin government. It's undermining the election system of the United States, and so forth. Snyder makes this point with regard to what was going on in the New York FBI office. But in in a sense, the same thing happened with the Mueller report being kneecapped, where by the whole issue of the Putin-Trump connection is framed very narrowly as, is there a strong case that we can charge Trump with breaking a law? And if we can't, then, oh, well, we haven't uncovered sufficient evidence. Mueller got trapped into that because of was Trump's Justice Department that was in control of things and 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 Mueller was like I, I you know I just have to be very legalistic and narrow here and a lot of people in his team didn't like that but that's that's the way he went so with the Mueller report and 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 with this stuff People have been trapped, and it looks like so much of the, the, the media is, is following down that road. Okay, All we have is new information about McGonagall. He was arrested for this and that, so let's report this and that and not look at the big picture about what this represents. And Snyder is, is, I think, extremely alarmed and very justifiably so that like we have to think about what is, this is all about and not just evidence of particular crimes. He makes the point that when the FBI and Homeland Security did investigate the Russian cyber measures to exert control over the election, they defined it very narrowly as, okay, phishing. Did they engage in phishing? Did they breach systems? But the whole point of it is there was a social media campaign to exploit, emo- according Snyder, a social media campaign that exploited emotions, including misogyny, to mobilize and demobilize voters. Okay, so the phishing and the breach of systems, th- these are technical means to accomplish the very nefarious, undemocratic end, and that seems to have like, dropped out of the radar of, of the FBI in terms of what it was investigating. Well, we'll have
0: to leave this conversation at that for today, but up next, our conversation with Felix Allen of Lowe's. Workers United. Today is February twelfth, and we are pleased to welcome back to the podcast Gabriel Donnelly to talk some more about the uh, new developments in independent trade unions and the U.S. Specifically, uh, we have with us a very special guest, Felix Allen, who is one of the organizers of the Lowe's Workers United down in New Orleans. Uh, Gabriel, welcome back to the podcast, and Felix, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you all for having me. Gabriel, you just published a piece in With Sober Senses entitled, Lowe's and Home Depot Workers Discuss Their Independent Self-Organization. The piece discusses the independent trade union movement in the US, and by way of some interviews with a, a few different organizers for independent unions, including Felix Allen, our guest today, Gabriel, I thought maybe you could kick us off with a brief uh, synopsis of what you're doing in the article and uh, also introduce Felix Allen to our audience.
2: Absolutely. So, uh, thank you again for having me on. As you guys mentioned, I had written the article on developments in new independent unionism. And my interest in that led me to try and reach out to some workers leading and developing these new independent unions. And I saw, you know, it was national news the um, organizing campaigns in the Philadelphia Home Depot and in the Lowe's in New Orleans. And I reached out and um, Felix was very gracious with his time and had a lot of great substantial answers that are in that interview. So I encourage everyone to go and read that article. And then we also thought we'd ask Felix to come on the podcast and talk more in depth with you guys and with me here about the campaign and about what it was like running that campaign down with those workers and what they went through and what led them to make the decisions they made. And so, Felix, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us uh, about Lowe's. Andrew was just pointing out to me that people listen to the show from outside of America who may not know Lowe's, um, people who in America who just might not go to department stores that much, they might not know Lowe's. So if you want to introduce the this, this store to, you know, the working conditions, what it's like, what's a pain in the neck about it, and so on.
3: Sure. Like Gabriel said, I'm Felix Allen. I'm 26 years old, living in New Orleans, and I have been working at the Lowe's on Elysian Fields in New Orleans for a little over two years now. Started working there six or seven months after the pandemic kind of started, December 2020. For those of you who are listening around the world or haven't been to a Lowe's, basically Lowe's is just a, a big hardware store. It's My job is a retail job, so folk can come in there and buy anything from lawnmower to contractors can buy whole pallets of concrete, stuff like that and there's stuff for people who are trying to fix things themselves or people who are trying to build a whole house. So there's a wide range of folks that we talk to every day. If you've ever been into a Lowe's, you'll probably notice that there are folks wearing red vests. Those are called customer service associates, and their function is primarily to help customers. uh, If you need paint mix or wood cut, or if you need a key cut, or if you need help finding something, you're probably going to go to a customer service associate. And then there are the folks on the registers. It varies, but my has about 200 people 170 to 200 it kind of fluctuates and my position is as a merchandising service associate they call us mst or msa for merchandising service team and our job is to uh, work for the vendors so a lot of companies like Craftsman or dewalt tool companies like that. They'll send us in projects that we have to work on. We have to set all the the bays in different ways when they have new products or when they're getting rid of a product or they they want us to put up new signage or build some fancy display. That's my job. And we're not supposed to have really as much of a customer service function, uh, but the store is so understaffed that we often end up needing to pick up some of that slack. For instance, someone will be trying to buy a door, but there might be only one customer service associate scheduled in that department and maybe they didn't show up or maybe they're on their hour lunch break so we end up having to deal with that even though we're not necessarily qualified to answer these questions so maybe I'll, I'll be walking past hardware to work on my next project and then I'll get stopped by five customers or something and maybe one of them will have some archaic kind of screw that was probably from like the 1800s and they want me to find that for them and then go through their whole list and I am not—I don't necessarily blame them because I, I think if you if you're a customer and you go into a store like Lowe's, you should definitely be able to get the help you need. But right now, we're just not situated that way. There are not enough people working in the store. And that seems like a conscious decision on the part of Lowe's to cut costs and save money on labor, which tells me that, first of all, they don't care about the employees getting frustrated. It seems like a, a very concerted effort on the part of Lowe's to cut costs, to cut hours, because they care much more about their money than they do about the employees and the customers so that was something i noticed almost immediately when i started working there because i was always working on things and initially we were working on a big project called p51 which involved rearranging the store and you know putting light bulbs which were formerly on aisle one on aisle eight and so we were always on a time crunch we were kind of coerced to go in on saturdays and work overtime and stuff like that and they pressured us to do all that kind of stuff and me Meanwhile, we were at the same time having to pick up slack in dealing with customers. So that was something I noticed immediately. And then uh, a couple months later, I got hired into the position I'm doing now, which is, like I said, a merchandising service associate. So that uh, understaffing thing was one thing that struck me pretty big because, you know, I had been into a Lowe's before as a customer and I noticed, damn, it's kind of hard to find help here because I was going in to uh, get a new doorknob or something. And I was like, damn, you know, people are kind of rude here, like they're not really that helpful. But now working there i recognize they're not being rude you know they're frustrated because they don't have the help they need to do their jobs like i can't ask someone who works in hardware to help me out with plumbing or anything like that so now i really understand how it is to walk a mile in the shoes of someone who works in retail so that was one of the big things um that struck me when i first started working at lowe's and then uh, i got hired on at 12 dollars an hour and uh, maybe after about a year I got up to like 1267, which, you know, I I work here part-time now. I started out full-time during the pandemic, but I actually moved to New Orleans to be a drummer. That's what I went to school for and stuff, and I've done all of my life. But I I worked full-time for about about eight months at Lowe's, and then once things started opening back up, uh, because this is New Orleans and, you know, there are a lot of venues to play at, and you can actually make money doing that way, that's why I moved here. So then I switched to part-time, and uh, about a year in, and I was making about twelve sixty-seven, and I noticed that uh, the new hires who I was training, and I was training because I was, at this point, one of the more experienced folks here. I, I was sort of training new employees. that would always stick the new hires with me to show them, you know, here's how you move all the beams on the shelves around and deal with them when they're not cooperating. Here's where you interpret all the projects you have to do and figure out how to, adjust them to what we need in the store. I I was one of the guys who they sent to do that because you know there's so much turnover at stores like Lowe's. Even someone who's only been there a year is gonna be one of the more experienced people on the team. So I I did that and then kind of casually asked people what they got hired as and some people would say like fifteen dollars an hour and shit like that. And I was like, well damn I'm getting paid like twelve sixty seven. And you know, I've I've had previous job experiences. I've worked in a warehouse, I've done landscaping stuff like that. So I'm not inexperienced and you know I got a master's degree. I've actually taught a college music class or several of them. So not that that makes me better than anyone else, obviously, or suited to work at Lowe's. But that did strike me a little bit as, OK, so y'all are paying me twelve sixty-seven, and all these new folks come in and are getting paid $15 an hour. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think all people should be getting paid a living wage. So I have no issue with people getting paid $15 an hour. But that really drove home the point to me that they see us as metrics. They don't see us as human beings. They're trying to just extract as much labor from us as possible, regardless any notion of fairness or what you're actually worth as a human being. That was one thing I noticed. So I went to my supervisor, and I kind of jokingly complained to him. And my supervisor is a good dude. He's no longer working uh, at the store. But he put in for me to at least get a raise up to $14 an hour because he can't give me that himself. He has to have it someone else approve it. So a couple of days later, he got back to me. He's like, yo, I'm sorry, man. They gave you a $0.21 cent raise. So I was at twelve eighty-eight per hour then. That was one moment where it's kind of like if y'all seen that meme or whatever of uh, Michael Jordan's saying, well, I took that personally. That was kind of my moment like that. That was uh, like, damn, y'all really going to treat me like that. So that was my introduction to all this. And, you know, organizing had always been in the back of my mind, even before I started this. I think I was in grad school when I heard about folks organizing in Bessemer, Alabama. And I thought that was really heroic given that. And I thought it was cool because, you know, it's the deep south, and people talk in a certain way about the south that is backwards and stuff but here in bessemer you saw a lot of particularly black workers organizing and i thought that was really inspiring it never really occurred to me to do that at lowe's just because the turnover was so high and i thought the odds were so insurmountable but i guess eventually something clicked you know there was a starbucks store across town in uptown new orleans our store is downtown and they organized a union uptown the organizer there got fired but after that i was like well they did it uptown we gotta show out and do it downtown so why not first person i got in contact was kind of jokingly i texted a, a friend from high school of hey you think i should unionize the Lowe's man and he was like oh yeah go for it man we're actually he he works at kind of like a tech job but he he said you know we're also thinking about unionizing and One of my coworkers just reached out to the IWW, so maybe you should reach out to them for advice. So I sort of started there. That was kind of how I started to get more information about things. I I checked out a couple podcasts, and I heard people like Christian Smalls and Derek Palmer, and there were a lot of other folks. They had a lot of insightful things to say, and I tried to learn more about the process and reached out to some local organizers. There was one group called the Louisiana Workers' Council that I got some advice from, and they've been really (laughs) surprised. Supportive. If you want to get in touch with a union, they'll, you kind of put in like an online form and submit that. So I did that for the IWW. And then I think the UCFW didn't respond, and then some folks encouraged me to try the Teamsters, and they did respond. But the the first big thing I did was I got some training through the IWW, and I took their OT 101 course, their organizing 101 course, which talks about how to form an organizing committee, and ended up getting on Zoom. I think it was like a 12-hour training, but I, I got on there, and I was able to speak with some folks from Seattle who were in the process of organizing their Whole Foods or their EMT group. So it was cool to talk with them and they sort of give you a mentor or an advisor. And I guess the online form I submitted indicated that I was serious enough about this, getting organized about it. So they gave me an advisor and I spoke to him maybe a couple of times a month when I was getting started. So that's how everything got rolling.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on one thing there, which is you mentioned, and it, it's this is well known in anyone who's ever done retail organizing, and then anyone who's ever just worked retail, and even if they don't realize it at the time, can look back and realize the turnover and the way in which people get burnt out and they leave that those types of jobs. You mentioned that that at first made trying to do this organizing campaign seem impossible so could you just say a little more about the sort of burnout and turnover at at a at a job like lowe's
3: yeah a lot of people view this job definitely as a transitional thing i'm 26 and there are a lot of folks a little bit younger than me who are maybe taking a break from college so they they didn't really care they were just there for a little bit and there are some older folks who are getting closer to retirement I guess it seemed like folks really didn't care enough about the job to do anything about it. So a lot of people got fired too, including managers, I think. But it seemed definitely like folks were quitting just because they got so tired of doing the same thing every day. And sometimes it felt like it was a little bit meaningless. Particularly in the position I'm in, you get a project from the vendors and they're telling you, okay, move all these drills to this spot or move all these riding mowers or grills over here. So you, I don't know, you'll spend like the whole day doing that and the next day you'll find that someone else moved it back to where it was before so folks get burned out for reasons like that people get tired of the pay and they go looking for other jobs and you know the grass is always greener on the other side as they say but that's not often the case people will end up going to the home depot downtown Uh, in the central business district and probably getting paid about the same amount. So it felt like a lot of people just wanted to go somewhere else just because they got tired of being in the same spot and it was just psychologically exhausting to be doing something where we're not really respected and we're not compensated well and it doesn't feel very meaningful. Because it's the first job for me that's not that wasn't a summer job where I was really working full time and felt like I was in the trenches. And you're working with you know grown ass people, and the managers will come in and treat you like a fifth grader. Like so, they all they'll have a morning meeting that ends where they call someone into the middle of the circle and they yell, "What do we do? Sell stuff? What do we do? Sell stuff?" And they gotta yell that. And I'm like, damn, y'all really gotta do that every morning? That's just like first of all, that's just, that's just pathetic, man. Like we don't need that rah, rah bullshit. Like We're trying to do the work and go home. People want to go home and see their children and help them with their homework and stuff. You don't have to Or like sometimes we'd be sitting down before our morning meeting and the district manager would come and say, "Okay, everybody stand up. I'm not seeing a lot of energy right now. It's like, I mean, that's the kind of situation where I want to tell someone to shut the fuck up. Like, I, I don't want to be treated like that. So a lot of people quit for reasons like that or they get fired. For attendance. For one, I mean, the infrastructure here in New Orleans is terrible because it's frankly a capitalistic hellscape. We have a lot of, as you know, hurricanes and we have a lot of subsidence. So the roads are always messed up. So people are going to have problems with traffic. People are going to have problems because a train is in the way of them getting to work. And a lot of younger folks don't have cars, and we don't have a great public transportation system. So those folks are going to be late sometimes, and they get fired. And it's just like they're cast aside like they're disposable. I I just imagine the people doing the firing. like How how do you not see these people as human beings who need a job to make a living? It's like y'all just cast them aside like they're, I don't know, a rag or something. But yeah, there's a lot of turnover, and I felt like I wasn't really going to be able to build anything there. Like, But then I got to know and love the people, and I was like, all right, maybe this is worth at least trying. I got an- another job, so if I get fired, I'll still be making some money for that or with that job.
0: Felix, just a quick uh, question about the way the, the retail scene works there. Am I correct that when you're describing the managers who are telling people to do ridiculous Exercises, restocking shelves, or running people through ridiculous team building uh, morale exercises in the morning. These are not like employees, retail employees who work their way up to some senior position, right? These are like people that like went to management school or something.
3: Yes, it is a little bit of both. The person I I was speaking about who came in and said, "Everybody stand up. I'm not feeling a lot of energy." That was someone who's I assume went to management school. Someone who is white, unlike most of the people who work in the store. And for reference. I'm I'm actually Chinese. I've moved here from North Carolina uh, just for that tidbit of information. But our store is about like 90 percent black. But there are some people who work their way up, too. I think there are some of the folks like that. And I, I don't really connect the dots on how you work in the job that we work at the entry level jobs and then you get you get up to a management position and suddenly you don't remember what it felt like to be on the bottom because th- there is some of that like I don't know maybe some people their only issue is that they're not the ones giving orders but like you mentioned it is a lot of folks who you know went to management school or they've been a manager since they they were 20 or whatever And they've always been a manager. And you know, we have new managers come in from other places and want to change everything around and they come in with a battery in their back, as someone said, trying to overturn the whole store and that really rubs people the wrong way.
0: That seems to be very common in retail from just my observations, not having worked in retail, just observing like the retail like grocery stores in my neighborhood, for instance. You have like every year there's like the new manager that rotates in from the corporate headquarters. And they're like usually white and they don't have any like store experience. They're just like management school experience, you know, and they often don't know what the hell they're doing. And the employees in the store actually know what's going on. But there's this weird dynamic where they're trying to like follow the orders of this manager and who's got his management school training, but he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And then the employees are like trying to figure out how to like make things work, but not piss off the boss, you know?
3: Right. Yeah. I I, I think that's a, a, we have some of that going on here. I should definitely point out. So the store manager who's over just our store, I I believe she is someone who worked her way up. I mean, I I can tell she works hard, but, uh, and I I don't have anything personal against her, but yeah, there is some of that. People have issues with her, not me necessarily. Um, And people have issues with some of the ASMs and, Uh, some of them complained about certain asms and managers and they ended up getting moved to different stores the asms did that is so there are people who work their way up and they've still given a lot of entry-level workers some issues but it to me it is striking when someone comes in from corporate like a district manager or whatever and they're not all it's not always a white person i i think identity politics is so strong right now that even these corporations recognize that they need to promote black people and people of color but i mean it's If someone's going to be an asshole, I think it doesn't matter to my coworkers whether they're black or white. They're going to recognize that regardless, which was this is kind of getting ahead of ourselves. But I found it extremely cynical that when our union drive did go public, they sent in three anti-union consultants who I'm sure they made a specific effort to find
2: some folks who were black.
3: And I found that extremely cynical, but uh, I think that was probably calculated on their part.
2: I know there were similar things reported out of the union busters encountered in the Amazon warehouses. And I experienced a particular case when I was working a union campaign in a warehouse that was largely a mix of of first-generation Arab and Mexican immigrants. And they got all Mexican union busters to meet with the Mexican worker contingent at the warehouse to meet with them in Spanish where they would then threaten them in Spanish with ice. <laughs> I thought it was a very extremely cynical but oddly honest display of, we're going to find someone that can talk to you and looks like you, but they're going to threaten you <laughs> for us from that particular campaign. But Felix, I wanted to ask, because you mentioned you mentioned Bessemer being an inspiration and you mentioned the Amazon campaign, but um, you mentioned to me in the interview a local campaign in New Orleans. Um, the, you mentioned the Starbucks one as well, but Gordon Plaza, could you speak a little about how Gordon Plaza inspired you guys?
3: Yes. I guess when I first moved there and, you know, I felt like I wanted to see what was happening in the community, I went to this rally. It was a group called the NOLA People's Assembly was having. And I went and heard folks speaking about Gordon Plaza, which for those who don't know, it's in a very clear cut case of environmental racism. Back in the 80s, folks were sold what was marketed as affordable housing, only to find out that it was on top of a toxic waste dump. I think it was a Superfund site or something. But they literally were like working on their lawns and they started digging up trash. Gordon Plaza is this, I believe, is the second most cancerous place in Louisiana, at least. So ever since the 1980s, these folks have been trying to get fully funded relocation from the city. To move into new houses, and the city always kicks the can down the road. You know, I, I noticed that happening. And at these rallies, it, would, uh, it was a majority black neighborhood. I think pretty much everyone there who lives there is black, but they would always come out in full force and incredible to see that solidarity. And there's this young black woman organizing with them. Uh, I'm not sure what her name is, but she was a, a very strong speaker, and I always see her with them. I'm not sure if she lives there as well, but I found that really inspiring. And at the end, they would always do this chant where they say, like, you know, it's our duty to fight for our freedom. We have nothing to lose for our chains. And they would say something like that. That really struck me because that's a couple neighborhoods over from where my store is. And, uh, you know, New Orleans is a city, I guess, but it, it's a pretty small city. A lot of people know each other. I'm a drummer here in New Orleans, and I know some people who have family who live there. The people I've played with have family who've lived there. So I, the, something about that, like I, I've always sort of recognized ever since my parents read The Lorax by Dr. Seuss to me by how, you know, these environmental issues and Capitalism are so closely connected and racism, militarism, those things are all, they seem pretty inseparable in our society. And I guess that made me want to do something in the place where I was and can make a difference, which was at Lowe's.
0: Hey, we're gonna to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're gonna take just a few minutes to hear from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast.
4: The Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are facing Faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism, Distinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, in which we do not merely assert, but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of quote value close quote because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism not to socialism we are not a political party nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us.
2: Felix, you should walk us through collecting cards, the committee, and then maybe the withdrawal.
3: Sounds good to me. You know, I've been reading a lot about the kind of steps you need to take to start forming a union, and the IWW kind of gave me that idea that the core committee is the most important part. I I spoke to that other group I mentioned the Louisiana Workers Councils and they gave me sort of the same idea that you can go through all this stuff with the NLRB but the most important thing is getting people together and really organized and not just going through those formalities. So I started trying to do that and you know I got a spreadsheet together where I I grouped everybody by department um and figured out to the best of my ability how many people we wanted to represent and who would be likely to come forward and a lot of people gave me advice like so just try to get like five to ten people who are really solid who are uh rough riders so to speak and then you'll you can maybe get started with card campaign so i started doing that towards the end of april and this is meanwhile i'm getting some of the training from the iww and stuff and let me, let me this, just
1: interrupt a yeah. card campaign explain to people what a card campaign is
3: to go through the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board process, to get a union election, you got to get 30% or more of folks at your bargaining unit, which in our case was our store, which had about 170 people who are eligible. You need to get about 30% or more to sign a petition or cards saying they want representation from the union. And then you bring that to the NLRB, and if they can verify that everybody actually works there and you didn't forge all the signatures and so forth then they come in and have an election and then if you vote on it that's when the union gets certified and you get to start negotiating or supposedly the employer has to negotiate in good faith but as we've seen with starbucks and amazon that's not really what goes down most of the time i guess we didn't really know what our goals were the first thing i did was you know just start taking the temperature a lot of folks were supportive, they say like, just give me the piece of paper to sign and I will sign it. But that doesn't necessarily translate into organizing. Sort of one of the things I I found is like, if you ask someone to go to a meeting, if they they say maybe, they're not going to come. If they say yes, they might come. It's only if they're like, fuck yeah, I'm definitely coming. That's when they're going to show up. You got to really learn how to really read people and use your intuition to see how really are they into this because a lot of people will be supportive they'll say yeah i'll come to a meeting but uh, you know i've had meetings where i set up where i expected six to ten people to be there and literally no one showed up it was kind of funny actually i was just out there at the meeting spot standing in the rain which was kind of hilarious but um th- that was the tricky part i i, I realized that it was really d- difficult to Set up a committee where you could get more than a couple of folks together at the same time. So I just started small, like getting two of my coworkers together and say, this is what we can work on. And I actually got on the phone with the advisor from the IWW and he helped kind of explain things to them. You know, it's helpful to have someone other than me to say, this is a real thing. This isn't just Felix bullshitting. So I started small. And then once I had a couple on board, we could go have conversations on the floor uh, with other people because it's easier when you have three people whispering in your ear saying this is going to happen than just me. It almost felt like I had done about half of the work before I started organizing just by making friends and being helpful around the store. I mean, just by working hard, I was able to build a lot of relationships and I had some measure of credibility, even though folks know I'm a Chinese dude from 900 miles away. I'm not from the store, but that was helpful uh, getting me to make friends and Uh, You know, I got two people from the community involved at first, and then we got uh, some more. And they weren't ready necessarily to take the risk of being seen working on this publicly. They didn't want to have their name in the newspaper because they had a lot more to lose than I did. But they they said, we want to work on this because they've dealt with a lot of stuff from that store. And I can't be incredibly specific because I don't want them to get outed. But, you know, they have issues with things like pay and getting hassled by managers, the disrespect. The understaffing—that's constantly stressful, and particularly if you're people that have kids, that that can be an issue. So we started like that, you know, got a spreadsheet going of getting people's contact information and just writing comments on what i talked about with people. And, you know, we talked about the main thing was to listen to folks, I guess, and see what their issues were. And then a lot of folks had no idea what a union was, particularly some of the younger folks. But, you know, I was even able to explain concepts like dues to them. Because, that I mean, for someone who doesn't know what a union is, or even for someone who does, that can sound like a scam. Uh, but when you really explain like particularly for an independent union okay everybody's going to pay dues but we're going to vote on the dues and we're going to vote on a contract and no one's going to pay anything unless we can actually vote on a dues structure in a contract and obviously no one's going to vote on paying dues unless you actually get a raise that makes up for those dues so you can explain it sort of like that and that actually surprisingly got through to people. I, I probably did a better job when I was talking to folks than I just did. But explaining concepts like that was, I mean, people get that shit. They understand, uh, particularly when they're in a situation where we're already being taken for a ride. Maybe they could feel like, OK, maybe he's actually saying something legitimate. I'm not less trustworthy than Lowe's, so they're actually going to give me the time of day when I talk about something like that, uh, even if it initially sounds like a pyramid scheme. But yeah, so we we kind of got a, a little core group together, and I was the only one who was ready to go about things publicly. But we talked about different routes we were going to take. I don't think any of us ever really wanted to go with the IWWW, but that was, they were extremely helpful in getting us started and kind of getting a c- committee together. But some folks mentioned reaching out to the Teamsters, and I'd heard about them because they had been working with some sanitation workers like a year or so before this started, and I thought that was really cool. I had heard the president of the local speak, and he seemed like a cool dude, so we reached out through their online forum, and they got back in touch with me. And I met with them, you know, we met with them several times, and I guess this is to the point about this is being an independent union. We recognized the limitations of the challenges that we were going to have going through an established union like the Teamsters. My understanding of the process was that they were going to help us win an election if we could get to an election, if we could get a majority or a super majority of the store to sign a petition. But we weren't going to get help from an organizer or anything before that happened. And don't get me wrong, they were extremely generous with their time. They said to always reach out, always call them and bring folks in there which we did but ultimately that that just wasn't going to be enough and I, I don't blame them because i know they were they really were swamped they worked their asses off and but they said like yeah, yeah you know if you get like 70 percent of folks to sign the petition we will win an election and you know in the back of my mind i'm thinking like all right, so if we do the part that's fucking impossible, y'all will come in and <laughs> do the rest. And again, I don't say that to throw shade. I just I think that's a reflection of where some of these established unions are at. Like that—that's just not going to be enough for our situation. Like there are people who want this to happen, but we we're not really situated to do that ourselves. So eventually, we decided as kind of a committee that you know maybe we should even if there's going to be a far. Uh, lower chance of us actually winning an election maybe we should get together and just do this on our own as an independent union like they've been doing in amazon like i said maybe we won't win that's definitely a higher risk but we were damn certain that we could get over 30 percent and probably closer to 50 percent of people to sign a petition saying that they wanted representation from a union that we started right here in the store and that's ultimately what we did
1: Listening to the the way you described this, and you said a lot of people didn't know much about a union and what kind of won people over was... We're not going to have dues unless we agree to it, and we get a pay raise so we can afford the uh, the the dues. Even people who don't know really anything about unions, right, in this country, the one thing that everybody knows is you join a union, you then have to pay dues, and the unions just have this reputation, not entirely undeserved, for doing nothing for the workers and taking away dues. So it seems to me that. You, you probably got a lot of more support than you might have gotten because you were independent. You were right there on the ground and not something coming from the outside where you were just going to have a, a structure again over the workers to take dues from them. Is that right? Do you think that that's part of what was going on?
3: Yeah, but I mean, I I, th- I explained also with an established union, like this might not always be the case. Even if we went with like the, is it UCFW or UFCW? Even if we went with someone like them and they were willing to help us, we'd probably be getting a raise that would make up for the cost of dues. Like, I mean, I even if I said we might have to pay dues, people understand that, A, I can give them, well, I can give them the statistic that on average in this country, Workers in unions make way more even after dues than non-union workers. People can hear that and know that I'm not bullshitting them because I'm more trustworthy than some white dude who comes in from Charlotte, uh, from Lowe's, to tell them that, oh, unions are going to take $50 a month from you. People are not stupid, and they know me better than they know these other people who are saying all that shit. So, I mean, even with the Teamsters, I think their formula is like for most people, they'd only need to get like a quarter— of a dollar as a raise for it to actually make up for dues so even with an established union i, I think we could have won them over uh talking about that stuff because there, and folks recognize the other benefits too you're you're not going to get fired or treated like you're expendable uh over some bullshit reason even that's maybe worth it to some people even if we didn't get a raise that would be worth the cost of dues to some folks i think
2: when i was uh in labor organizing the companies union busters would often say you're going to have to pay dues no matter what and what if you don't get stuff worth your dues and the line that we had which which had had a great deal of truth in was you don't start paying your dues until you have a contract
3: that's exactly what i said like this is some stuff we have to vote on
2: right and Um, why would you vote for something if you are going to be losing out
3: exactly and you know that line is so funny that they always say like oh what if you don't get a raise like my my thing is like well y'all are the only ones stopping us from getting a raise so why would you even say that like that's such a bad faith argument why would you even make
2: it it's if memory serves you guys even just from being visibly out there and doing the work and collecting cards you did win a raise, right from from those or at least, even though they didn't acknowledge it
3: yeah so you know they came in and it was weird because it was actually after we withdrew the petition we got the raise but so I was making 1267 and then before the drive started I, I got bumped up to like 14 which was a raise that they legitimately gave or something like that. But after that, I was at, uh, after they came in and said, all right, there's a company-wide raise to address certain concerns and you're getting this all without a union. I was at $17 an hour at that point. So I got around a $3 raise. We So we do these things called Lowe's best surveys every year where you gotta like write as an employee, what's your satisfaction with Lowe's? And they said, we listened to you on your best surveys. You said that you weren't getting paid enough And yeah, we listened all without a union. So here's your raise. And you're like, man, y'all didn't need a fucking survey for us to tell you that we're not getting paid enough. You know, we're not getting paid enough. Or maybe you don't because you're just people who don't have to live on $12 an hour and have with children. You know, like everybody got called into the office individually and the store manager told them their raise. And for everybody but me, what happened was the manager would say, and oh, by the way, this is not because of the union. And folks would tell me that uh, our manager said that, and they'd just be like, they'd all say that they just stared at her blankly when she said that, like, come on, we're not stupid. So I thought that was kind of funny. And it's cool. Like, after we got that raise, people would come around to me, like, actually saying, thank you. And I'd be like, for what, man? Uh, And they'd be like, oh, you know, man, we know why we got that raise, uh, that type of thing. Like, old ladies were trying to buy me food from the vending machine and stuff like that. So obviously that in addition to feeling good, I was happy to know that people understand that organizing works. And the only thing that will make them treat us better is if we threaten them and get together. I mean, in an ideal world, we would just go march up on uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, where the corporate headquarters is. And just we need to be militant. We're not going to get anything by, you know, going directly to management as an individual. And I think folks recognize that, that we need to get together if we want to get this done.
2: You, you talked about Bessemer and Starbucks and Gordon Plaza and you c- cited all these examples that inspired you guys to start organizing in your lows and then how working together, standing up people straightened each other, you guys won something. And you know, there's this web, there's this web spreading of like inspiration of people getting inspiration from this drive or that drive. You texted your friend who was in a totally different industry in the tech world and they were organizing. And I wanted to ask you like, overall, where do you see this, this resurgence going? Do you think it's gonna slow down in the next year? Is it, is it hits a, a big wall of like the Amazon and Starbucks unions trying to negotiate their contracts or is it going to just keep going? Man,
3: to be honest with you, I have no idea. I will say that a lot of people have reached out from other Lowe's stores and they're organizing now. It was cool because I was working on this at the same time as Vince in Philadelphia from Home Depot. And when I saw that he filed, you know, I got in contact with him and, you know, he shared that he had some of the same frustrations as I did with organizing and difficulties and he shared some of his strategies with me. You know, that was actually at a point when I thought about taking a different route going slower than we were. But after I talked to him, I was like, fuck it. Let's do this right now. Let's keep going. So hopefully what we did can have the same effect on people. And I think people understand that the things going on right now are related. We're in so-called cop city in Atlanta, where the police just killed someone. You've had, obviously for the entire history of this country, but ever since I've been in high school, I've been conscious of black people getting killed by the police, particularly unarmed black people. And I think these things are gonna hit a boiling point. I think one thing when I was struggling with organizing during the summer that happened was or I I can't remember if it was the summer, but the repeal of Roe v. Wade, um, you know, that hit me pretty hard. There are all these attacks, you know, on, on immigrants on LGBTQ people from the right wing and
2: i was working a campaign in the summer when the dobbs repeal came down and i noticed almost like the campaign got a shot in the arm saying i was doing a retail campaign too i was working in a, a very awful retail job and we had like just hit a wall we were going to established union, so we needed that 70 percent that you said as you pointed out is impossible and we were stuck at 60 yeah. and dobbs came and suddenly all these young women on the job who did not really want to help out, came in the next day and said, We want to do something. You know we we feel like we're losing control of our lives, but this campaign feels like some way we can um, have control of some aspect of our lives. And they got involved. I got gave it a shot in the arm. when you you're mentioning Dobbs, is it, you're saying you saw a similar thing inspiring the campaign to keep going?
3: I mean, honestly, I, I don't know if it was necessarily anyone else. I know there are people at the store who have had abortions. I know for a fact, and you know, need access to reproductive care without getting bogged down and having their bodies controlled by the right wing. That was never something we talked about, but there there are definitely points where I felt like I wanted to quit and things like that happening made me want to keep going, definitely. So I, I don't know if that was a big impetus for anybody else, but it definitely was for me.
1: I'm extremely interested in something that you said about uh, these struggles of uh, being connected, the struggle for racial justice you know, against police violence and so forth. I think people from the outside who are looking at that will say, well, what is the connection between that and low pay and bad working conditions uh, at a home improvement center? How do you view the connection and people that you work with, how do they view that?
3: I'm not sure who said this, but I think there was a saying during the civil rights movement or after, like it, it doesn't make a difference being able to sit at an integrated lunch counter, if you don't have the money to buy a sandwich, and I think that's something that people feel like New Orleans is always in the top ten of places with the most economic inequality. After Katrina, people recognized who was able to move back and who wasn't, and that that was along racial lines. So th- that that's pretty easy for folks to recognize that this is one way we can take control of our lives if we can get ourselves more money. I shouldn't say we because you know I'm not black, but I think people recognize it. If they could take more control of their lives in this way, I I didn't never really put it in these terms. But, you know, I think people recognize that capitalism is the problem, that people are we are being having our labor stolen from us. We're having our wages stolen from us like they're stealing our lives from us. They're stealing our wages and they're stealing our time. I I think that's the connection. And, you know, one thing I, I did talk about with some people was that kind of new civil rights movement and the poor people's campaign. When Dr. King, up until the day he died, was working with the labor movement in Memphis, working with black sanitation workers who are holding up signs that said things like, I am a man and stuff like that. So I think these things have always been together together. I guess, you know, racism and capitalism are kind of two sides of the same coin. It's not hard to make that connection with people, particularly folks in this community were rec- ready to organize and they were ready to stand strong. And they saw that these two things were both affecting them.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. I'm not sure we could talk for longer, but we have to kind of edit it down to our, our standard episode length. So Felix, thank you so much for the, taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you all for having yeah, me. Best of luck with uh, the union uh, going forward.
3: Well, we're going to try to get it going.
0: Gabriel Donnelly, again, thanks
2: so much for
0: being on the podcast. And we recommend his Gabriel's new article to people to check out on With Sober Senses.
2: Thanks so much. Thanks. Good to talk to you again, Felix. <laughs>
0: Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.